Hi there, and welcome to Grief is My Superpower. I'm Mark Lemon, award-winning children's author, bereavement ambassador, and your host for this podcast. Each week, I'll be interviewing incredible people that get open and honest about their own experience with grief. When I was 12 years old, my dad was murdered, and my life changed forever. I try to explore with my guests if it's possible to live a happy and fulfilled life after the death of a loved one. You can find me as Mark Lemon Official on Instagram and at the Lemon Drop Books website. For this episode, I speak with author, writer and dad, Benjamin Brooks Dutton. Benjamin speaks with me about the death of his wife and how it shaped his outlook on life. You can find him on Instagram and Twitter as Benjamin Brooks Dutton. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review wherever you are listening to this podcast. By doing this, it will help us to reach more people in need of support at a tough time. This podcast is in support of children's bereavement charity, Winston's Wish. Okay, so as mentioned in my introduction, today I'm interviewing someone that I've wanted to get on the podcast for quite a while now, and I've followed his story, whether it be on social media or YouTube or or television, and he's hugely inspiring in the way that he has told his own grief story, and it's Benjamin Brooks Dutton. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's been a long time coming, like you say, but glad to finally be talking. For the listeners, would you be able to just give them a brief introduction as to who you are and what you do and all that sort of stuff, please? Of course, yeah. So um, I'm Ben, and um, I guess I'm here today really because uh, my uh, I was widowed when I was 33. I'm 40 now. Um, my uh, wife and I had a little boy called Jackson, um, who was two when it happened. Uh, we'd gone out uh, to see some friends one day. Um, and when we left their house that night, um, a car came speeding around the corner, mounted the pavement, and it struck and killed my wife uh, in front of uh, me and my son. So, yeah, I've been kind of on this grief journey, if you like, for the past nearly seven years. Um, what I do in my professional life is I'm a diversity consultant. I co-run a business called uh, The Unmistakables. And really, uh, my role in that came about because I took my son into my old agency one day when he was seven, and he looked around and probably said what others were too scared to say and asked, where were all the black people? So it made me stop and think, right, what can I do? You know, like I'd done so much work in the grief space and I I knew that the work I did from then on had to have some purpose, but I didn't want to be in that same space forever. Um, So yeah, I took a leap, I left PR and I went into the... um, the now hectic world of diversity and inclusion. Yeah, because we were talking off mic, haven't we? Obviously, with the whole Black Lives Matter and everything going on in the world at the moment, how, yeah, for you. And and do you know what? In in a way, I can kind of relate to that in terms of my children's books and the, the diversity in that. You know, I kind of, all of a sudden, people were trying to, or wanting to diversify their bookshelves. So, yeah, I completely understand how all of a sudden it kind of, you know, it's gone a bit, a bit busier. 
Yeah, and I thought about you actually a lot because um, you know you sent um, you sent us um, some of your books a while back, and I know that there was um, some frustration there because you know you didn't necessarily see kids that look like yours in books on shelves, and suddenly you're starting to see publishers all over the world, um, you know, share the the visuals of the books that they ha- they may have published or that they may be publishing now as they start to make um, inclusion more of a priority. So uh, you know you were you were a bit you were ahead of the curve, Mark. So kind of going back to obviously the reason we're talking today is about grief. And, you know, I know you've touched on it uh, briefly in terms of um, in terms of your own grief and, and what's happened to you. But I was just wondering whether for the listeners, you could take us back to to the period of, you know, after your wife had died and, and how that just completely changed your life. It did. Um, I mean, to evoke a picture, um, we sat in my friend's flat um it happened just outside there. Uh, you know, Jackson was in one room being looked after by some friends and I was given my police statements and I was, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can even find the word, almost like high um, in such a state of shock that I was, uh, you know, telling my friend who whose house I was at, who was also my colleague, like what meetings I had on Monday and that I probably wasn't going to make them and I was making lists and I was being super organized. And then when the police eventually drove us home. We waited for ages because we had to wait for a, a child seat for the car for him to be safe. We were there for hours and then they eventually got one and we drove back and the car was so silent. And I was like, oh God, it's so awkward in this cab. <laughs> and I was like, you know, making conversation, asking them where they lived, what they do. Well, not what they do. They, they were evidently, I probably did, but they were evidently police officers. Um, but just making chit chat because I was just on another planet and then um, went to bed that night for about probably half an hour, woke up the next morning, and then life sort of kicked in. And I, you know, had to figure out how we'd left home, three of us the day before, and how it was just going to be the two of us now. And, you know, effectively really raising a baby um, on my own for, from that point. Um, so, yeah, it was um, it was really, really turbulent, confusing few weeks. And, and one where I look back and just think it was like a revolving door of people just coming through. Like we, we lived in a little flat at the time and we had to sort of overspill into the pub across the road, which seemed like completely inappropriate, but also the only thing to do. Um, so we sort of lived out there and like, you know, the funeral was actually three weeks later while we tried to, you know, sort through everything and, and make it feel like it was the right time. Um, and, and I suppose, yeah, that was a period of like, just mad thoughts, all sorts going on. Yeah. And then it it wasn't, I suppose that the, the story that people may know me for happened soon after that, although this, the, you know, the, uh, Desiree's death was in a lot of the papers and on the news. It got to, it happened in November. It was on November the 10th, but it was a, it was on New Year's Eve. I remember sitting up in bed thinking, I'm going to have to stop talking about this tomorrow, you know, living this old cliche of New Year, New You. And I'd spoken quite publicly, you know, just on my social network to friends and stuff like that about how I was feeling. I thought, I need to shut up tomorrow. Everyone's going to get bored of this. And so I tried to relaunch on uh, January the 1st and, and it didn't really work. <laughs> um, I'd say, uh, you know, I started running thinking that would, help and then I would get about a mile down the road and for the first time in my life I just had all of these words in my head and I was like where are these coming from and I don't just mean like you know thoughts but words like prose and I remember sitting down in the it was freezing and I remember sitting on a bench and just getting my phone out and scribbling all this stuff down then I think it was about the 5th of January when a friend came over and I said you know what I'm thinking of 
starting a blog or something just to get these thoughts out because there must be other people going through stuff like this like me but I couldn't find them I kept going on Google at night and putting the words life as a widower in and trying to find men my the same age as me that had gone through it that I might be able to talk to and there weren't any so I said to a friend I think I might start this blog and he went you know what just do it and so I went on bought the url lifeasawidower.com and I just started writing I mean it's quite a powerful process isn't it when you just start getting all these thoughts out of your head and onto paper and you know taking you back to that process of you were going through that grief and that initial I mean I I remember myself you know I mean I was only a 12 year old boy but that kind of that instant shock and how all of a sudden then it does hit you and you find these ways of sort of processing it and and trying to live this new life that you're now presented with and I guess the question is you know all of a sudden it's just yourself bringing up your you know, your child. And how do you think that kind of changed you and made you the father that you are today? Um, I think that without realising it, um, everything became about him. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is that when I was up at night um, trying to find out what life was going to be like and trying to find advice, it was really all for him. You know, I, I, I sort of, without knowing it, put myself right to the back of the queue and I was like how's he gonna be because he, he can barely articulate how he's feeling because he was so young what's his life gonna look like when he's older um uh, how am I gonna be a decent parent when I feel so bad um and I could you know some days I don't even want to get myself out of bed and like how can I find the answers to these questions so I think that the writing started as a means for other people to find me and then give me the advice um, because I just didn't know where to go. I didn't know about the charities that you and I now know about and that, you know, work with and stuff. Uh, so I, I sort of put myself out there. And then I suppose that's continued in the work that I do now. It's all about, you know, trying to make sure that he doesn't walk into a room like that again as an adult and think, why am I the only one? And so I guess all the work I've done has tried to uh, to push against that. And it happened um, really quite quickly. I think probably what attracted an audience to the work, attracted seems like such a strong word because I always think of people being kind of repelled by how um, graphic some of, it, some of it is. But I wrote this piece. What happened when I started the blog? Um, I guess I had about 5,000 hits in the first day and then day two it was about 30,000. And then it wasn't long till I was on a million. Um, but after about um, three days, I think, I got a call from someone at the Guardian um, and they asked me to write a piece for the for the family supplement on a Saturday and I um, and I wrote it about my son I was like it, the, the piece is called um, where's mummy gone and it's all about how to tell a child that their parents died that their parents died such a young child and um and I, honestly, so many people read it. Like sometimes when people meet me now and I have to, you know, I introduce myself and I tell the story, they're like, oh, I read your piece in The Guardian. <laughs> and, it's, and it was seven years ago, you know, it was so, so wide, widely shared. And I was on the BBC and like within a, within a few weeks, I had a publisher on the phone offering me a book deal, trying to figure out even what book to write. And, I, and, and what ended up um, happening was I wrote about 365 days of grief because all of the books I got sent they just they didn't really do it for me they didn't do enough they were they were a bit um they were they felt like hindsight you know it everything was a bit cleaner and a bit more like it's going to be okay and I needed to hear it you know I needed to know what it was like I needed to hear the rawness in it and so when I didn't find that I just wrote it and so the first book you know is um the book's about like 
from the day it happened until a year after. And then the paperback that came out, it, it adds four more chapters, which is the four seasons after that as well. So it was all about really being honest and capturing the experiences of of a man crucially you know because i don't think back then there were as many men opening up and talking out speaking out about this stuff there's been great progress since and also a child like a really young child what were the questions he was asking what was he worried about what were his concerns how did they show up in uh, you know verbal and non-verbal ways so yeah i think it's all really been about trying to make sure I've captured his experience for other people and also tried to make sure that I've reached out to the right people to make his experience as he grows older as positive as possible. And how did you find writing the book? Because I would imagine it was quite cathartic for yourself doing that. Did you feel that way? Yeah, it's a word that a lot of people have used. Uh, I think that I was so uh, I mean, it was live, you know, I, I think probably catharsis probably comes when you look back at something, you know, I don't, I, I, it was just so, um, it was just so latent there that, you know, um, I was working a lot as well. So, well, I wasn't working a lot, but I was working throughout the book. So I wrote a lot of it on the number 12 bus into central London from Peckham. Um, and, and I literally look, every time I look at this seat, I'm like, that's where I sat and wrote most of my book. And so, and, and often it would be about what was happening right in that moment or what I was feeling. Like there was this, there was, there was this one time when I think partly I almost wanted people to hear my story so that if they looked at me, they could make sense of why. Why I looked so bad or why I felt so bad because I felt like I really wore it and so there was this one day when someone called me from uh like uh the Inland Revenue to to actually tell me off for not claiming benefits which was weird for not claiming benefit like widowed parents allowance as it was called then and when I explained what had gone on obviously you know it was it was um it was rush hour in the morning loads of people heard me um and I'd also just said that I was leaving my job you know that I couldn't take it anymore I mean I <laughs> bless this woman that had called me she'd only called me about you know about uh about money and she got the whole life story uh, but this guy sat next to me and do you know when you used to sit on the back of the bus and like get your fo- your calculator out and spell boobies and stuff like that and pass it around this guy literally wrote me a message on his phone passed it me and said i'm so sorry to hear what's happened really good luck leaving work today and with the rest of your life and and then i wrote this piece immediately i got to work and i wrote this piece immediately for my blog called spelling boobies <laughs> which was about that experience and but what it was really really about was um the kindness and generosity of of strangers when you do open up and that you don't necessarily have to stay quiet about these things and keep them inside because people are decent and they you know and um they will put themselves forward and and support you so experiences like that kind of wrote the book i had to be careful in the end not to put everything on the blog because i got the you know i sort of got addicted to just sharing it and putting it out there straight away so um uh, because I also liked the immediacy of the reaction as well. Not not from like a point of view of attention seeking at all. Actually, I didn't like that at all. I didn't like it. I didn't even like it when people told me they thought the writing was good. What I what I what I really thrived on was people saying, "Oh, I've been through this, and this is what I learned," and sharing those experiences so that I could sort of start to try to make sense of how things might change one day. And have you found yourself being contacted by a lot of fathers as well in your similar position? You know, I mean, I know you've, you've, you know, you've been on programs with Rio Ferdinand and, you know, connected with other dads out there um, that have experienced the same thing. Um, have you found that since writing the book? Yeah, well, actually, that's where it started. So if you if, if anyone reads the first piece on my uh, blog, it was called Opening Up. And it was about me saying 
you know, what I was doing about how I was Googling and looking for guys like me in the same position, um, you know, w- once I tried to go to bed at night and I was lying awake, you know, doing the same search every night. And so that was my mission really in the beginning. Um, and so when I went on the, the BBC and did my first interview, I was on BBC Breakfast. I said that, you know, I was looking for the guys like me and I left the studio in Salford to get, you know, the cab back to Manchester, uh, Piccadilly to get the train back to Euston. And in the cab, I got my first message off someone called Simon. Um, and then I got my second message off someone called Dan. And then it just went on and on and on. And suddenly I found that there were loads of guys my own age sat at home <laughs> going, where are all the guys? And I set up a, a private Facebook um, group, which um, if for those people that saw uh, Being Mum and Dad, the Rio Ferdinand documentary on BBC One about the death of his wife, he comes to uh to meet a number of us and we were all connected in that private Facebook group so there's quite a lot of guys in there now you know in the early days there was there was a, there was a handful there's like 250 300 now um, um, and I think that they needed to find a space that was actually specifically for men um, because I think that people everyone experiences grief differently but I think how people want to handle it can be quite different as well and sometimes in a more mixed environment, I found certain cues within that weren't necessarily what I wanted at the time. So um, sometimes I wanted to just go in and rage about some, you know, about, say, trying to cancel my wife's mobile phone contracts because she was dead. And the person saying, I'm going to need to talk to her about that. And I needed to actually go and rage, you'd rage and swear to someone. And then for, you know, one of the other guys to be like, oh, right. Yeah, well, I've this, this thing's just happened to me. And, you know, and also there's just, there's just a gallows humor to it that sometimes, you know, you go on there feeling awful and then you can sort of have like kind of a dark laugh about things. And, and, and I found I needed that space, you know, just like I need, sometimes I need space with my family. I need space with friends. Sometimes I need space with female friends. Sometimes I just needed to get into a space with a group of guys that were going through similar things and and facing different challenges and also raising kids and and seeing how that was going i mean it must be quite a nice environment to be involved in when like you say you know the bereaved get each other in a sense you know so when you can go on there and and have that sort of dark humor like you say it's kind of like okay i get you i get i get where you're coming from yeah (laughs) it's kind of like how you know you can say something about one of your siblings but no one else can (laughs) you know um yeah there was there was definite connection in there the sad thing is everyone's there through adversity and so what i really discovered over time was like when people start to feel better those groups and those individuals sort of um you know lose contact a little bit but that's a good thing you know it's a it's it's healthy progression and you could see that actually the amount of conversation between individuals changed over time because you know their lives changed and and that's a really really positive thing i just think it is i think it's important to you know try to connect with people and and find your crowd as much as possible which i'm sure is you know you can connect to in a lot of the work that you've done look you 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 run this podcast where where you've you know you've interviewed dozens and dozens of people and people do look for those joint connections and I think it's a really amazing thing that that social media and the written word and you know um, all different sorts of media have connected people in that way yeah I think it's it's brilliant how you know the work that you've done and and all the other charities that you know you and I have been involved in to do with grief and to to do with this subject and I'm sure like you I get contacted by so many people just saying I'm so pleased that you talked about this or you've raised this subject or you've you know because I've go I'm going through such and such you know sort of time at the moment and you know if anything it just inspires you to carry on to continue the conversation 
Yeah, I think as well. What, what I think when I look back at things now, I, I'm able to uh, I'm able to look back at you know the the whole period of time and go like, what did that do? And um, what happened collectively uh, in that time? And I think one of the things that's really struck me is that you know in the work that you do in the in the in the words that I've written in what like Prince William, Prince Harry's done, Rio Ferdinand, all of these things have had a I think a really positive impact on challenging male strength and what that is. Because I think that um, when I uh, started right, well, no, in fact, when Desreen first died. I was in shock and people confused that with strength and they were like, oh my God, you're doing amazing. You know, you're such a strong person. I was thinking, why do you keep saying that? Or they'd say like, be strong. And I'd think, okay, I'm so confused now. I am strong. That's what everyone's telling me. I'm told to be strong. So am I not actually allowed to feel how I feel or be myself? Like, is this what grief is? Is this instructions? And I honestly didn't know I'd never gone through anything like this before. And then um, I just had this moment, this epiphany where I was like, this is bullshit. I am not being told how to feel right now. And actually, you, what you think of as strength is not what I think of as strength at all. And I started to really process that being vulnerable and showing vulnerability was my strength. That was my sort of strength. It might not be everyone's, but I think that that is yours as well. I think that that's. I think that probably now people will often say to you, "You're such a strong person," but you know, that's manifested as openness and vulnerability rather than classic male old-fashioned strength. And I think that that's what, when I look back at all the work that's happened since um, and all of the things I've been able to get involved in, whether it's like working with mental health charities or bereavement charities or making the the documentary with Rio Ferdinand or, you know, even speaking to um, Prince Harry about this sort of stuff, that's kind of where, that was kind of where that's all shown up. Everyone's really challenged that idea of strength. And that's, I think, what I'm most proud of um, and what I'm, you know, celebrate the most in the work that other people like you have done too. Yeah. Like you say, strength isn't being silent. It's being able to have the space and be confident enough to to just feel like you can share how you're feeling, you know, like you've just said. So kind of moving on to yourself and Jackson, and have you received any counselling over the last few years? Or do you feel the work that you've been doing has helped you enough to help yourself in terms of your grief? Um, yeah, I've had, I've dipped in and out of counselling um, a lot, yeah, and Jackson has. Um, I mean, I started almost straight away. I remember being sat in my flat and, and someone saying, have you had any counselling? And I'm quite impulsive. I was even more impulsive then. And I was like, no, but I'll be back in a minute. And I literally ran to the doctor's surgery, thought I'm going to see the doctor straight away, I'm just going to burst into tears and they'll feel so awkward that they'll put me in. And it worked. And uh, yeah, I got this course of counselling, but it was about two weeks after Des died. And I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but it was way too soon for me. And I also didn't really know what counselling was. I thought she was going to heal me. <laughs> so I sat there. And I said some stuff. She looked more upset than me. I must. She was like, can you back up? You know, like I was speaking so fast and I went to two sessions. I thought this is a waste of time and I don't like her. So I'm not coming back. And that was me abandoning um, counselling. And then a couple of people said to me, I, I think maybe you need to revisit it, find someone you like. And actually what I realised was that it's a bit of an interview process as well. You're not necessarily going to l- get along with every counsellor or trust every counsellor or see any of, uh, uh, of you in them. So yeah, in the end, I had, I think, three different counsellors. And um, I also did something called the, um, the Hoffman process. 
which was a residential retreat that I went on for a week, uh, which I've actually never spoken about before, but happy to. Um, yeah, I went away for a week uh, with no contact with the outside world. Um, my uh, Jackson's grandparents looked after him and I had my mobile phone, laptop, everything locked up in a, in a chest for a week and explored all my demons and went back to my childhood and had a good old cry and met other people and came out of it feeling kind of different about stuff. Not, you know, not healed, but different and more positive. Then, yeah, Jackson had some uh, counselling as well, partly because he had to be assessed because there was a financial claim because of the way my wife was killed. And they had to look at, you know, how he was likely to respond as, as he grew older. But when he was, there was there was a time when he was really little, about two and a half, where I, I almost felt like I couldn't cope because his behavior changed so much and he was so frustrated and so angry and I didn't know what to do. And when I sought counseling then, I think it was six months before anyone saw him. So, you know, he changed again. It had been like a, a sixth of his life and he just changed again. But when... <laughs> There's a there's a there's a good psychiatric hospital near us near us called the Maudsley. It's one of the best in the country. We got an appointment there, and I remember the uh, the doctor. Um, he was playing on the floor, and he was playing very independently. He always has. And she said, "He's he's you know he seems well. He's does he always play like this?" And I said, "Yeah." And then she he started she started asking me loads of questions, and I said to her, I said I don't mean to be rude, but why don't you ask him? You know, he's sat next to you. It's an assessment for him. Why don't you ask him? And she turned and asked him a question. And he looked at her and said, why don't you mind your own business? (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. And I just thought it was incredible. He was not even three. And I, I thought, you know, it's in these moments where you think you're at the lowest of your low. You're at a psychiatric hospital with your child thinking it shouldn't be this way. Why am I here? And this, you know, this light story springs out of it. So, yeah, he has. I, and I think that the thing with counselling as well, especially when it comes to children, it's never done. You know, like life's never done. Things change. I'm acutely aware that, you know, life's changed around him. It will do as he starts secondary school. Look, he's living through a global pandemic as well, like we all are. But, you know, what impacts that having on him being kind of isolated at home with me again? So, yeah, I think uh, counselling is something that I'm a great supporter of and that, you know, I'm sure that we'll both revisit over time. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, it's kind of an ongoing process, isn't it? Especially when you're dealing with grief, um, as I'm sure everybody out there listening will understand. Um, just moving on to, obviously, at the end of last year, you published your ebook, Lost for Words, in collaboration with Life Matters Task Force, and, and lots of bereaved children were involved as well. So what prompted you to create this amazing book? Because it is amazing, and, and the whole concept around it I thought was incredible. Oh, thanks, Mark. Yeah, I'll tell you how it came about. So I chair um, the Life Matters Task Force, which is a coalition of different bereavement charities, um, whether that be uh, for adults or for children and families. And that task force came about because when uh, the widowed parents' allowance was being scrapped, I could see that all of the charities um, that have got quite low resource when it comes to PR and marketing, you know, through lack of government investment in the charities themselves, um, were all trying to get the same message across and fight these changes. And I um, uh, made a suggestion that we all work together as a, as a task force um, to fight this. And if we didn't fight it, which was quite unlikely because there was only two weeks to go, work together on a series of recommendations that we could take to the government um, for you know to look at how 
uh, bereavement support could be uh, offered in different ways. Because even if we had reversed it, there's still not enough done to support families. So we worked together on this and we came up with six recommendations and we wrote a report and we took it to the House of Commons and we presented it there. Done tons of interviews around it and stuff, and then um, it was. It's been a real challenge to keep the, the the message alive because you know during this time, you know we've had like what is it now three years of Brexit debate, and so there was nothing else on the agenda. It was really hard to make um, to make any noise around it. So last year we agreed to concentrate on um, Children's Grief Awareness Week and build a campaign around that. So there was a theme for it, um, which was called Lost for Words. There was a kind of social media uh, theme for it every year. And when the team shared this with me, the different charities, I was like, okay, I've got an idea, pretty much on the spot. (laughs) So I've got this idea. Let's actually um, ask children for their advice instead, because there's tons of advice from adults for children. You know, there's loads out there that that's what that's what you and me do, you know, and that's what the charities do. But I was really interested in hearing it straight from um, straight from the kids themselves. So uh, those that are under uh, 16. So um, I put a call out on all my social media um, channels to ask people uh, to ask children to ask the parents of children and also to ask adults who were bereaved as children what their one piece of advice would be um, to other kids that have been bereaved. Um, We twisted it a little bit because we also um, realised that for some kids, some kids hadn't got the verbal skills yet because they weren't old enough to to really articulate themselves in a way that was sort of book-worthy in the traditional sense. So we asked people, it didn't matter how brief it was, to uh, provide um, a quote and an emoji to communicate their feeling as well because we wanted to really you know get that point across that not all kids are able to articulate themselves so that there's other cues you can look for as well non-verbal cues hence the emoji um yeah so we got loads and loads of stories um through and loads of advice and then i collated it into uh, a book sort of edited it into a book and then jackson and i wrote the foreword and there's loads of advice from from him in there as well about things that he's done to really keep his mom's memory alive Did he enjoy the process of creating the book? Yeah, to be honest, I think what he enjoyed the most, I think he he, he fell out with me. <laughs> he fell out with me a couple of days before the deadline. He's gonna. He was like, "I'm not contributing to your stupid book." <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, when we were on TV doing some interviews around it, it was his book. So actually, this was really um, interesting for me because we um, uh, we got a PR agency called Blurred to help us with the PR. They volunteered and helped out. And they secured some really good interview opportunities. Um, And we went on to uh, Sky News, got to the studio, and it's miles and miles away from mine. We get in a cab and, you know, he was in the car for ages, really bored. Um, And then when we got there, they said, right, we're ready for you now. And I went, oh, Jackson as well. And they went, oh, no, 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 no. And I went, oh, okay, but you said it was both of us and I've brought him all this way. And, And they went, oh, we don't usually have kids on air. And I said, come on. So they took him on. And actually, it wasn't because uh, I necessarily wanted him to have the limelight, but because I'd made him travel so far and because he had been involved. And this was the best part of it for me from a personal, um, on a personal level, because for the first time in a long time, probably since counselling, I was able to hear, hear him talk to another adult about how he felt. Because, you know, when uh, when someone interviews you, you have to answer the question to them and not me. 
you know. So he articulated himself really well. He was nine years old at the time. And he sat and he told this presenter how he felt about his mum and, you know, what he'd done since. And I sat there and I was like, oh, God, this is really powerful stuff, you know, because, you know, I'm a PR person as well. I was looking at this thinking, like, this is a really powerful story now. I didn't even realize how powerful it was until he spoke, because I don't think I've ever, I've, I've not often seen such a young child go on and talk so articulately about grief, but also laughing and making jokes all the way through, which giving people hope, I think, that you can be okay at some point. You know, this is a child that people would expect to listen to, be completely bereft or not even hear on TV. You know, speaking really articulately and also really positively about how he remembers his mum and what he does to keep her memory alive. And then we did about four TV interviews. And, you know, it was the first time in ages I'd heard him speak um, so directly about it. And it was, it was really, it was incredible for me. It was so, so powerful. He was amazing. I mean, I, I've watched a couple of the interviews and the way he came across on camera, you know, it was like, it was like he'd done it before. And so I think, yeah, to get him on to, to speak alongside you um, was equally powerful. Just going to move on to some questions from the children at um, Children's Bereavement Charity, Winston's Wish. They would like to know, how do you make yourself feel happy when you're feeling sad? Um, well, I think firstly, I'd say um, not to try to move on from a feeling straight away. So like if you are sad, I read something yesterday that a feeling lasts on average for 90 seconds. So not to try to make that 20 seconds because it will come back and get you anyway. So to sit with it, you know, feel sad. It's okay to feel sad. It's good to feel sad, to acknowledge that um, loss or that sadness and, and just sit with it for a minute. But then I think, you know, trying to find and concentrate on the things that do make you happy again, whether that's uh, talking to someone you love, you know, whether that's writing your feelings down, whether it's drawing a picture. But I think... I think I'm one for taking notes. So making notes of things that do make me feel sad and making thing, notes of things that do make me happy so that I can exchange between the two when I need to. Uh, and that's really what Jackson wrote about in Lost for Words, you know, about the things that he did to make himself feel happy and keep his mum's memory alive, which is like, you know, little things like um, making a cake on her birthday and having it for breakfast or, you know, having pictures of her on the wall or having a memory ma bear made out of a piece of her clothing, um, you know, so he's got this bear with him every night when he goes to bed. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, next one is, what piece of music reminds you of Desreen? Oh, I think there's there's probably two answers to that. Um, there's one that's kind of like the sad memory, um, which is uh, This Woman's Work, which is by, it's originally by Kate Bush, but there's an amazing version by Maxwell as well. Yeah, I love that one. It's such a great song. But there's like loads of pop tunes that really remind me of her as well. Like, Whenever I, whenever I hear Cheryl Cole, she was she was a stylist agent and she used to work for um, Cheryl Cole's stylist. And whenever I hear "Fight for This Love," it always makes me think of Desiree from the very first bar, and it and it just puts a smile on my face because I can just see her dancing around to it. Okay, the next one is: What do you do to remember Desiree on important days like her birthday? Oh, so on a birthday, we either go and buy cake from somewhere fancy the day before and have it for breakfast or Jackson and I make a cake together. Um, we just have that moment in the day. And then, you know, uh, actually last year, um, last October would have been her 40th. So I got together about... 20 people like her closest friends and family uh, and we went for a really nice lunch um uh just kind of low-key uh you know it wasn't a late one or anything like that but we just marked it together i think really it's about bringing people together that would have been there anyway um 
and just, you know, celebrating the life. I think that's what I try to do. You know, I, I try not to think too much about the anniversary of her death because there's nothing good to say on that date. It's more about let's celebrate her life on her birthday itself. Yeah, that's amazing getting everybody together. Okay, next one is what three things are you most thankful for at the moment? Um, most thankful for, I am thankful, um, for the time I have with my son. Um, I think that lockdown has been difficult from, you know, a homeschooling point of view, but it's been amazing to be with each other so much. I'm thankful for my health. I think, um, we're probably all very acutely aware of the risks that are going on out there right now. And I think every day when I come downstairs to take my temperature and I find that it's under 38, <laughs> there's a little gratitude there. Um, and I'm actually, I'm really thankful for the work that I do. I found something that I really love and is really satisfying. And I'm just grateful that, you know, when I'm seeing so many people um, losing the jobs or furloughed or whatever, that, you know, I've got something that is, um, that's building momentum at the moment and that we're seeing, you know, real change with. So yeah, I'd say those three things. One last thing that I do like to to ask my guests is, um, and it's always a big one, if you had one final conversation with Desreen, what do you think you might like to say to her? I think it would be quite a long conversation. <laughs> uh, I think there'd be quite a lot to cover. Um, I think the thing that I've um, struggled with most over the years uh, when it comes, is trying to second guess what Desreen would have wanted for our son. Um, we did have conversations about, you know, private school or state school. Uh, and we did have conversations about, you know, who we wanted him, uh, whose support we wanted, you know, in terms of like family and friends and stuff like that. So we were kind of clear on these things. But I'd want, I, I always saw that she was, you know, I always thought that she was the more natural parent anyway. And I always thought that she had the answers. So I, I think I'd probably mostly want to talk to her about him uh, and what she wants from his future and, and how we can, you know, help and progress and things like that because it is difficult to go from you know being two parents just to being one making all of the decisions and and sometimes you know I kind of try to think about what her answers would have been um, but I'd love to hear them straight from the horse's mouth. Ben I just want to say a huge thank you for for speaking with me today and you know I want to say a big thank you for the work that you've been doing over the last few years to help lots of bereaved people out there yourself and you know like I said before you know you inspired me to continue to to tell my story and and just you know open up the conversation which is what we're we're both trying to do so yeah I just want to say a big thank you and equally to you I think that it's really really inspiring and you know just the way that you um you know do so much to uh to really acknowledge your, your dad's life and really support your family it, it it's it's a wonderful thing to see and i know that you don't i know that we get kind of a lot of support in social media but it's not the same as hearing it is it firsthand so no i'm um i'm i'm you know i feel very lucky to have made contact with you mark thank you so much yeah take care thank you you too